Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between, welcome back to the Stu Simpson Show podcast. Today we're going to get all bookish. All well, I've been a bibliophile for many, 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 many years, but one of my favourite authors that I know of, and is a friend of mine, is a guy called Tom Adams. Hello, Tom. I've not seen you for ages. How are you? Greetings, Stu. I'm Spiffity Boo. Spiffity Boo. I like that. I've not heard Spiffity Boo ever. So that's that's a new one on me. Splendiferous yes, is one of my favorites. Ken Dodd or someone like that. Spiffity Boo. Ken Dodd's, also, Ken Dodd is one of my favorites as well. So you're, you're already winning in my book. So, but speaking of <laughs> books, um, what have you been up to recently? Have you got any, any new books out at all, perhaps? Um, the last one that came out, I was uh, I co wrote with a friend of mine who lives in Brampton called Andy Naisbit. Mm-hmm. He's in an epic fantasy mode. Uh, it's called Destiny of Queens. So, that came out in August and is the second book in a trilogy. So uh, that's happened. Was that um, Destiny of Queens? Destiny of Queens, that's the one, yes. I, uh, so the I, first... know, I know many destinies of many queens. It's, it's funny that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there's four queens in that book, one of which is a dragon. Excellent. So, uh, and and, and so, some end up happy in the end and some don't <laughs> yeah like like a lot of queens i know <laughs> yeah but, but yeah but i do yes. love dragons. Oh, i'm getting Any, you now <laughs> yeah, yeah there you go anything anything with dragons and and queens is a is a good thing by me so you're winning on all accounts um so yeah look our connection is that um we've well, other than living local when i'm when i'm up north uh, and seeing you around uh is i designed an album or an ep cover for you many many moons ago uh, cause you like my artwork and that's kind of, um, so I, I just thought, oh, Tom Adams, he's a musician, musician, uh, not mm. a magician, <laughs> a musician, but you make magic in other ways. Um, yes. are you still making music as well as, um, making, writing books? Not to the same degree by a long chalk. Um, I, you know, I, I was in bands and playing solo and recording, composing music for a good part of 12 years. Um, then a lot of personal stuff happened um, and writing came in and it was like, heck, there's not enough room in my life for, for all of this, at least to the same degree. Um, so I haven't been doing a lot um, music wise. It, it's sort of always there in the background and I, I do a lot of listening to music. Um, and I've got one or two sort of compositional ideas, uh, but it's kind of on the back burner, um, which may sort of come to the fore again in the future. Um, but uh, in my room here, I've got this sort of stand of guitars and I occasionally reach for one. And then because I haven't been playing enough recently, the um, skin on the end of my fingers <laughs> gets really red raw in about 10 minutes. Aww. And being the that I am, I, I give up <laughs> and don't come back for a week. But uh, I'm sure it'll come back one day. But uh, yeah, it, it's more writing um, on the page rather than sort of writing in the singing version of it. So has it always been that way? Have you always had a bit of um, music and a little bit of uh, writing? Uh, Hard to say, really, because my life's had lots of episodes in it. Mm -hmm. So if you went back to when I was a a youngster, um, I would say writing little stories at that age was probably the thing. and then when I think I was about eight, I got the chance to learn guitar. And so music came in. And then in my teenage years, it was very heavily music. Um, then when I was in my 20s, I tried writing a novel and, and failed. I got to about 
80,000 words, which seems quite a lot, but it was going nowhere and oh. has remained. <laughs> um, and during that stage, also just busy with life, not doing a lot music-wise. And it wasn't until I really got into my 30s again that I took up music, started playing in bands, covers mainly. Um, and then in the 40s, got into it in a big way, um, both original and, and covers stuff. Um, as time went on in my 40s, I was um, gigging as a, a sort of solo artist, <laughs> dare I use that word for myself. Um, and that's uh, at that stage, it's when you did that cover for me, which is on the mm. wall here, by the oh, way. Real oh, nice. one. <laughs> I've had it framed. <laughs> oh, that was lovely. And um, so, yeah, heavily into things, sort of staying up till two o'clock in the morning and um, getting back uh, in the early hours, um, playing, travelling all over the north of England and sometimes Scotland. Um, thoroughly enjoying it, but mm. after a while, it, it sort of gets it's it, a bit much. And my last like... fling with music um, was with a, a local wedding band where I was actually doing quite a mixture of stuff. I was um, a roadie, a sound engineer, in charge of video, playing the guitar, and backing vocals. Wow. <laughs> All at the same that... time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's, that's a <laughs> lot. So I'd have this radio mic in the audience singing backing vocals to the um, singer on stage who was far better than I was. Brilliant. Um, and I'd have the iPad in my other hand doing the sound engineering in between on all these people looking at me strangely. <laughs> What's he about? What's happening there? What's and the sound engineer? Why is the sound engineer singing? I, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> of course, they all wanted to grab the mo microphone as well and sing through it. Um, this is not karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're at a wedding, everyone thinks yeah. it is, of course. That's true. It's true. Yeah. And, and, and they've become across they're... that you before. Everyone wants to get on stage with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually I started my own little um, wedding song business a little a few years ago. I tried to called Your Day Your Song. So basically, I'd oh, ask wow. people. So I said, "Tell me your story, and I'll write about your love life, and I'll put it into a song, and I'll perform it at your wedding with all the rest of your stuff." I did one wedding, and uh, because <laughs> at the end of it, because I, I was asked to play uh, a song by McFly, which I really can't stand, and I just felt so <laughs> I felt so cheap. But it was a really good money maker. But my principles, I just went. Actually, mm. I'm I'm worth more than that. <laughs> yeah. It's all about you, by McFly. That was that that was the song which brought oh, my yes, wedding music career. <laughs> my son was well into them. <laughs> I've got a very good friend who's very very much into them, and unashamedly so, and absolutely, and I believe now as an older man that I can actually say I was I was not about McFly, but about my prejudices around music um, mm. over the years. Have you, have you found that as you've got older, you kind of maybe relaxed any of those? Because I'm assuming that you're into rock. Is that yes. kind of your genre? <laughs> it's certainly broadened as I've yeah. got older. Um, I think it's fair to say late 60s and the 70s are the real heyday for the explosion of inventivity and invention in music. Um, and to sort of find that same sort of invention, you've had you have to move away from heavy metal and hard rock because most people are just rehashing the same thing over and over again. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, uh, I'm listening more to singer songwriters, um, the occasional band, but um, anything that has energy, which isn't the same as loudness. When I was mm. a teenager, I thought, yeah, it has to be loud, you know, yeah. Motorhead or. Um, but it's more about the energy and how it affects you. Um, 
So I've come across a lot of sort of obscure artists that I'm quite into. And there's a, um, I think she's Norwegian, Kerry Jansen, Kerry Jansen, who uh, the sort of performing name Thero, and she mixes up um, folk with um, roots music with Russian disco and lots of other things in between. Um, that sounds very and, much up uh, my street. Yeah, she's, she's well worth checking out. She's got this absolutely beautiful voice, which is unlike no other I've ever heard. And she does a beautiful duet with another Norwegian artist called Modi, um, who is another favourite of mine. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's well into the political side of things as well. And he's got a, a wonderful album called Unsongs, um, which... Uh, it's basically covers of songs that have been banned for whatever reason over the last 50 years. Really? So there's a cover of uh, Kate Bush's Army Dreamers, for example, which was banned in the 80s because it was thought it would demoralise the troops in the Falklands War. Wow. Uh, and there's other songs by um, people. Um, there's one written by, I think uh, he was from in the Israeli forces, but was confronted with the horror of what he had to do and wrote a song basically on the, on the side, if you like, of the, of the Palestinians. And his song was banned on um, Tel Aviv radio or whatever it was. So there's a whole bunch of songs by him. Um, but he's lots of other stuff as well. And I just love the way that he, he apparently taught himself guitar and he could sing first of all, and he had all these great ideas and he had to basically push himself. And I think he's a better guitarist than I am now. <laughs> he hasn't even playing it for about 40 years. And oh, yeah. He's better than I am after about 10. <laughs> it doesn't, uh, I, th- I think for me personally, but it's all about taste and about what, we, what you what you like. But uh, you talked about energy before. And I think for me, I really, really like a band. I mean, that's why Kirk Cobain wasn't like the best guitarist ever, but he just had that energy. And it's about what that's you right. put, put into it. And so it's not in the kind of, I get. I went to see, for example, I went to see Muse in Glasgow yeah, I was so uh-huh. bored. It sounded just like the record. I was like, well, I could, have, <laughs> yeah. I could have saved 25 quid and just put the CD on in the house. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and not went yeah. to Glasgow. So. Apparently Crosby, Stills and Nash used to say that about the Eagles. It says that their harmonies are so perfect and they just reproduce their songs on stage. You might as well listen to the record. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think they were glorying the fact that, you know, keep it keep it real. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I think, I mean, there's there's no such thing as perfection no, in in. Mm-hmm. in yeah, and, and I don't I don't want to hear something that sounds exactly the record. I went to see a band about two weeks ago called The Ordinary Boys, and it was the best punk-ish ever gig I've ever seen. But I kind of knew this guy from uh, reality TV. He came from Big Brother, and it was just really weird. And I was I listened to his songs like, this guy's brilliant. Seems like a bit, I mean, he's mostly known as like, Preston from The Ordinary Boys, and he walked off, uh, never mind the Buzzcocks. So you probably mm-hmm. sort of, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. And that's what he's remembered for. And, um, oh, and but exact, but the gig was astonishing. I mean, the drummer put the sticks through the front. I've got bruises on my knees. I mean, the energy in the room was out well, of this. You were into the drum kit, too. He stabbed <laughs> you through his snare drum. No, 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 he didn't stop me through. anyway. Uh, this isn't about me, this is about you. <laughs> I'm um, so as well as the rock and roll, does that come into your writing at all when, you, when you're actually writing uh, in your fantasy novels? I mean, because I think like things like Game of Thrones, that's kind of got like a kind of rock feel to it. That, yeah. Yeah. Do you, yeah, I can imagine um, Game of Thrones would lend itself to symphonic rock, probably, yeah. you know, something like Nightwish or, or what have you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does, it does spill over because, um, you know, writing 
lyrically probably fires similar neurons in your head as writing, say, poetry or writing, writing what I sometimes call prose poetry. So it's sort of, you know, as you're sort of writing out a first draft, you, you come across and you can't plan these moments. Um, you get these moments of like serendipity where the, the pen sort of moves itself along yeah. the page where, um, and that link with music, I think, helps that. Um, so sometimes I'll have an idea for a story and it's maybe started the story or it's maybe started the song. Um, last year, I wrote a, a short story which um, came out of a song called Names and Goricks, which is an old sort of mishmash of uh, old folklore. I think um, the names come from France and Goricks come from England or something like that. And it was linked with an idea and it was a horror story about um, apparently these men so evil that when they died and went to hell, um, even Satan rejected them. So he oh kicked them back out. <laughs> and it's the, apparently they they sort of uh, ride the earth on their horses of death, seeking um, you know, to spread their malign influence on mankind. And it's sort of linked with that folklore. So I wrote a song called Names and Goricks. And then out of that came uh, a story, um, which in the end was called, what was it called? I can never remember the names of my stories. Um, Those Whom the Grave Will Not Hold which caused me a lot of problems with the title because mm -hmm. I had to think, is it those who the grave, who the grave or whom the grave? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got to get it right because if that's wrong on the title page, no one's going to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm assured that it is those whom the grave will not hold. Yeah. Um, so that became the first in a series of um, little stories, sort of novelette size that I'm bringing out at the moment. That almost sounds so, like an Iron Maiden song. Yes, it probably would be. <laughs> yeah, Steve Harris with his bass sort of writing in his room and names and chorus. Yes. I always forget it was Steve Harris who who's the songwriter. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, oh my goodness, you're, you're helping my synapses is all connect now because my first instrument was bass. And, uh, and right. yeah, a long, long time ago, I didn't want to play the guitar because everybody played the guitar. I got mm. the bass and Sting went to my school, so I thought and Sting was a bass player. And I thought, well, uh, so if Sting can do it, then so can I. And, and I, I could not write a song on the bass. I just couldn't do it. And Steve, and I was a massive yeah. Iron Maiden fan. So I thought Steve Harris and Sting, they can write songs. I just, it was, wasn't was in me to write a, anyway. So then Nirvana came along and I actually, if it's good enough for Kurt, it's good enough for me. Yes. <laughs> Great stuff. So uh, what does a typical writing day look like in uh, in Tom Adams' world? Um, depends whether I'm in editing mode or first draft mode. So first draft is where either you just got a blank page in front of you or you've done an outline and you're sitting down. It's a word processor for me. It's a very rarely write longhand. Um, and in that case, when it's first draft, um, well, in fact, for editing as well, I have to do it in the morning is when my brain's at its most clear. Once I get to the afternoon, it's just like sludge. <laughs> I'm very unproductive. Um, so I try to get going by nine, usually fail, get going by 10, uh, a couple of cu cups of coffee. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll either write in my office here, which I call the Dragon Cave. Um, I'm not allowed to call it a man cave because my daughter says that's sexist. So <laughs> it has a little <laughs> dragon in it. I call it the Dragon Cave. Um, so I'll, I'll tap away and I'll put on an incense burner, get a few scents going. 
I'll put on some ambient music. So there's the connection with music again. Helps inspire. It's got to, it's not got to have words in it though. Yeah. Because words interfere. For some people that's okay, but for me, I just start listening to the music rather yeah. than writing. I'm, I'm so, exactly the same. <laughs> create the mood, as it were. Um, and it takes about 10 minutes. And, and to help me get into it, I usually look over. If I'm sort of in the middle of something, I'll look over what I've done yesterday and read it through again, maybe make the odd little correction just to get up to speed. And then I go into it. And after 10 minutes, it's usually starting to flow. Um, and if anything, it's hard to break out of that. If some people, you know, say, oh, writer's block, you know, it's difficult to keep going. It's actually the opposite for me. Once I'm into it, I could just keep going until my brain turns to sludge and the words are just meaningless anyway and I have to stop. So you're like um, hyper-focus. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and it it does need you to be in an undisturbed frame of mind, um, which could mean literally... You know, do not disturb on the door. Um, however, I do sometimes go into Brampton, um, at one of my favourite haunts, Off the Wall Cafe. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't go as far as say I've got a reserved seat, but it's kind of known that I sit around the corner <laughs> on this little table mm. and tap away. Um, and for some reason, I'm able to concentrate there. It's like going to the office, sort of going to work. Um, that doesn't mean I don't talk to people at all, but um, it's like the the people chatting and what have you in the background just becomes sort of white noise oh, uh, and yeah. I can focus quite well there and, and they do some really good coffee as well so uh, shout out to Emma Woo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's got quite a few credits in my books for that reason so so that's first draft writing um, when a first draft's done I'll sort of put that aside for a little while because you need to vi- revisit it again and then maybe after a month depending on how long it is, if, if it's a big book, I'll tend to print the whole thing out and I'll actually just read through that longhand and start doing the second draft. But if it's on the screen, which it eventually has to be, I'm into editing mode. Um, and so it, that requires a different sort of mindset um, because there's all sorts of sweeps. You just go over it again and again. And it's not just about grammar and word placement. It's about you know, does this dialogue sound authentic? Mm. Does this bit of text, is it just too dense? Is it a bit like an info dump? And that's particularly true of fantasy. You know, you're trying to describe this world. And it's very tempting to write five pages of the, the planet Zargal or whatever, yeah. and it's straight beheaded creatures and explaining how, you know, they can survive on this planet. And after a while you realise, no, that's not going to really engage readers. So you've got to learn how to sort of split that up and deliver it in a different way. So uh, also getting the voice right for the characters because I tend to lapse too much into what's called purple prose where I I like long words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you're talking about Charlie from Brampton who perhaps left school at 16, he wouldn't write like I think. And so you've got to sort of get yourself in the head of the characters a bit more um, and imagine how they would talk and how they would relate. And that doesn't mean that you can't get to say deep things um, and come up with profound truths, but they have to explain it in their own way. Mm. Um, so I do that sort of thing on the editing sweep. Um, and then I might send it out to other readers called beta readers who yeah. give some comment, hopefully on the plot. And I try to send it out to people who will say to my face, this bit stinks. 
yeah. <laughs> that bit doesn't work because all too often you can send it to someone. Oh, that was wonderful. Yes, print it just as it is. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, they're just being nice. Yeah, I, say, I don't, <laughs> don't want you to be nice to me. I, I want the truth yeah. because I, I want this to be as good as possible. Um, so that it comes back from them, and then you go through it again, and eventually you get to the stage because I'm self-published rather than traditionally published. Uh, you have to format the thing, and I've got a very nice program that does that fairly seamlessly. Um, and then what I've started to do more often than not is I record the audiobook oh. because what you have to do then is prepare it like a script. You know, you, you'll know this yourself yeah. when you've got things you have to sort of rehearse them, and um, when you're audio narrating, it's sort of voice acting. Um, and so you'll read that through in a different sort of way, and you'll actually think about how you're going to say that character's voice not necessarily with an accent but you you, you come up by reading it out loud um you sort of hear the so sort you, of cadence you hear their voice in your head yeah that's it and and, yeah. you, and i'm correcting it as i go through thinking actually i'm going to change that sentence around or that word um or that whole section and you also still discover mistakes of course um and so what i ended up end up with is a pdf at the end of doing the audiobook which I then feed back in to the next version. So I've probably ended up with about six, five or six main drafts in the end, plus an audiobook, which uh, is all, always a good thing. Another way in which you can sort of get your your work out in front of the audience. Yeah. So where do, where can people well, listen to the audiobooks? Um, Audible. Um, it's pretty much exclusively through that. You don't have to go exclusively through Audible. Um, but if you do, you get more money. Yeah. <laughs> so you get 40% as opposed to 20%. So at the moment, they're exclusively through Audible. Um, so, you, you know, if you're a member of Audible, you pay your eight quid a month and you can download it via that with a voucher. Um, however, if you do want to listen to my stuff, I've got, um, you know, for any of your listeners there, um, they can email me and I do have free vouchers. So if they oh. are on Audible and don't want to pay out, they're eight quid a month or even up to 30 quid a book um and i've got free free vouchers available it's um supposed to be for giving out for people to potentially review them but um you know i won't hold them to that uh, i'll just it and, well, uh, you know just set, you can send one to me I'm, I'm, i love a bit of fantasy so i'll definitely do do your an honest review oh that'll be yeah. good well uh, i might send you um the, the first book Cradle of Darkness, then you might like that. Excellent, excellent. Because I am. Oh, you can choose some... one if you want. Pardon? You, you you can choose another one if you want. No, no. But... Send, send me the Cradle of Darkness. It sounds like a metal band and a good fantasy novel. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, that. speaking of metal bands, which you kind of got that fantasy sort of thing. Have you heard of Heilung? Heilung. Spelled H-I-L-U-N-G, or yeah, H-E-I-L-U-N-G. Right. No, I haven't. That, do do it like out. me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the not the I think the kind of Nordic. Uh, they sing like things from rune stones which they found years ago, and they call oh, themselves okay. Amplified History. They're amazing. You know, that's I think you would read like it. And it's, for me, I can have it on the background and yeah. do some writing or painting or whatever because I've no idea what they're singing about. So it kind of is that kind of great. background <laughs> thing. It's it's awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, so who are your writing heroes? Do you have like musically? Obviously, we've got influences and things. Does that happen yeah. with your writing as well? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Um, <clears throat> I mean, back going back many, many years to childhood. I mean, the big ones were Tolkien and Stephen King. Mm. Um, I mean, Tolkien was the first to really transport me totally to a different world and have me absorbed. Um, <clears throat> you know, my dad started reading me The Hobbit as a 
um, a bedtime story, and he got sick of it. He says, "Oh." Really? I don't like this bit about Gollum. We read the rest, so I did, yeah. <laughs> and then and then I actually read the Silmarillion next, which is quite a hard book to read. Yeah, and then went the Lord of the Rings, um, so that was wonderful. Um, I, I guess you could interview any fantasy author, and they would tell you that Tolkien features on the list somewhere. Um, Stephen King. I watched the TV series uh, starring David Soul of Starsky and Hutch fame in the late seventies. <laughs> And it was a vampire film, if you're familiar with the story. Um, and it <laughs> absolutely set the, the jeepers up me. And I thought, I wonder who wrote that. Found out it was this guy, Stephen King. And that was the first of his books I read. And after that, it was just never looking back. Went on to The Shining and yeah. all of the well, others. Carrie. Uh, and all, he, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was very much a horror writer in those days. These days, he's more suspense. I'm mm. reading his book at the moment called Billy Summers and there's no supernatural or horror elements in it as such at all. Yeah. And yet he's still as ripping. Um, so th those were big ones when I was younger. Um, I, there's my brother-in-law, I think, next who said, you've got to read this guy called Clive Barker. You like Stephen oh. King? I think you like Clive Barker. And uh, I says, all right, what's he written? He says, well, his latest book's called Weave World. I said, what that's about? He says, it's about a carpet. Really? Okay. <laughs> um, Got to read that. Uh, of course, the, the, the story is this wonderful thing about um, this fantasy world of how this um, almost like a, a, a fey species has been encapsulated in this carpet and this guy falls into it and you know fights evil and so on. And um, it was a wonderful book. So uh, again, hooked from there, I read all this stuff from Magica to Galilee, uh, all of these other things. Books of Blood, of course. And he's also a, an influence as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had even an ounce of his talent and his imagination and his um, ability to just come up with these weird ideas that somehow, although they're strange and bizarre, actually work. He can sort of convince you that they're real. Um, more modern day, and I enjoy reading these authors as well as they influence me writing-wise. A bit more obscure. There's a guy called Adam Neville, Mm -hmm. who is in the style of uh, an author from quite a long time ago called M.R. James, so very much sort of ghost stories and suggestive horror, this idea that there's something happening in the corner of your eye that disquiets you, and yet when you look at it, it's gone. And he manages to sort of evoke that sort of feeling oh. in a wonderful way. Um, you're very disturbed once you've read his novel, and it's not that it's so much blood and gore, it's just that he sort of twisted the knife into your brain <laughs> and moved it around and left it <laughs> in a very apparently psych psychologically that's the a, a less evolved part of the brain which is attached to like hunting the things that, ah, that, that yeah. still I, I just find the psychology behind like reading and fantasy and how the brain works is it's it's incredible so that's when you think you're seeing something in the background is because your your brain is still in that kind of like hunt mode so yeah. if something or if something's hunting you so you're kind of like yeah and then your cortisol keeps going and you go oh adrenaline so you want to come <laughs> back for more so but what well, is it what, I, I would use that in my next blog if you don't mind that that's, um, that's you know something i didn't I'd sort of been vaguely aware of it, but you've sort of articulated that in a way that I couldn't. Yeah, but look into it. It's really interesting. I find it absolutely mm. fun, uh, fa fascinating. Uh, so why did you choose horror and dark fantasy and, uh, and epic fantasy as your genre, or did it choose you? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But when I started writing in earnest, probably 2015, um, and there was that whole question of, you know, what do I write? 
and I knew what my influences were. And I guess it was either going to go perhaps fantasy-wise. I knew I wouldn't be able to write crime fiction because I just don't know enough. I'd have to do too much research. I'm too lazy for that. I'll leave that to the likes of Mike Craven, another yeah. local author of mine who's brilliant at it. I can't equal that. So I ruled that out. And then I thought, well, it could be horror. Um, and I realised that if I put myself down for something, um, it might sort of typecast me in a certain way. Um, so that if I started writing, say, cosy mysteries or something like that, and then I thought, oh, I'd really like to do Slasher Fest. <laughs> There's <laughs> no way my shit that I built up would accept that. So I thought, I'll just start extreme, <laughs> and then I can always dilute it if that's a problem. <laughs> I love just it's probably just me and, and my odd taste and things, but I just love the idea of a, like an Agatha Christie meets Slasher Fest. <laughs> She's got to sit, solve all of the murders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all, all of it at once. Well, having tea. <laughs> yeah. But um, I suppose that I have sort of written essays and blogs on this. In fact, if any of your listeners want to sort of go on my website, I've got a blog section and there's one called Five Secrets Horror Authors Don't Want You to Know. Uh, and one of those five secrets secret it's just a bit of clickbait for me to describe it like that but um um it's that you know this sort of attraction to the dark if you like um isn't necessarily that you enjoy feeling that way of being totally sort of chewed up inside but it's a way of sort of just releasing those anxieties um in fact i've got a quote from your friend and mine neil gaiman which um i shall read out he said um if you're protected from dark things, then you have no protection of knowledge of or understanding of dark things when they show up. So it's almost like preparation for life, but also sort of um, in a macabre way, maybe for death even, that mm. maybe if you've sort of come to terms with these things in your life, you're a bit more prepared for shaking off this mortal coil. Um, there's lots of other people who've written about the subject as well. Um, but uh, and again, an obscure author, Jack, Wallen, he says he writes dark fiction because he holds up a he's like holding up a mirror to society and saying this is what you're like some of the time you know confronted you may be disturbed by it but this is what we all have inside us yeah um, let's deal with it um, and you know through it perhaps become better people make the world a better place and that's the funny thing um, horror authors are some of, some some of the nicest people you could possibly meet yeah yeah <laughs> and and maybe it's because they've just sort of um, been able to th- you know, go through therapy and ministering it themselves through writing. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's interesting how creative pursuits can do to, can can help many people, not just the readers but also the writers themselves. So it's mm-hmm. um and artists and musicians. I mean, Hila Hila herself, I believe, is, is yes. a, also a saying. So yes. you're mentioning this. There's a crossover there between um, your own life, your fantasy, and music, and all that sort of stuff. At the moment, I believe you've got other things going on as well in your actual, in your real life. Um, you're, I believe you're running for the Green Party, is that correct? That's right, yes. Um, does, that, does that cross over at all into your work? Um, to quote another author, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, to Kurt Vonnegut wrote, um, uh-huh. um, oh, Breakfast of Champions and uh, a load of stuff like that. Um, great author, but he, he said on the subject of writing, um, because someone asked him, what should I write about? He says, just write about anything. In the end, you'll be writing about yourself and you can't help it leak through. So um, the political side of thing does leak through 
but it's not that you know I'm going to sort of preach to people through my characters or through my plots and what have you. Um, it's uh, more like that you ca you can't help it. And, and what, I suppose what I try to do is create characters and scenarios that get a readers to sort of put themselves in someone else's shoes for a change. Um, so I've got a character in Destiny of Queens called Brethis. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting rather than have it all swashbuckling knights and barbarians and what have you, but you actually had someone who was a socialist who yet was put in a situation where he had to sort of fight for his people and be a bit of an insurrectionist and yeah. the sort of conflicts he would go through. And so I thought, that, that's an interesting character. Let's make it a bit more interesting. And he falls in love with this um, uh, queen. She's a queen's sister at the time, but she becomes queen, one of the queens in um, Destiny of Queens. Uh, and she's very much this imperialist Amazonian type character. And so here's him with his socialist mentality trying to sort of liberate his country. And he comes up with all these uh, ideas of how it could be in this utopian society. And she's saying, no, just get my dragon to breathe fire on them and have done with it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, you, you write all sorts of characters who, some of which you think, well, they might sympathise with my view politically, but then there's these other characters who perhaps only partially do so or don't at all. Mm -hmm. And you sort of just throw them together and, and just see what happens. And hopefully there's a mix in there that people can tap into. Um, and even if this character on the surface would be someone they wouldn't relate to through the book, if hopefully I've done my job properly, it just gets to think, oh, yeah, I've thought of it quite like that. You know, maybe I'll just either look into it further, read a bit more. Um, and I think that's what it's all about. It's sort of empathising, and that's what good fiction is able to do. Mm. Um, you're able to sort of appreciate things from quite unlikely characters. Um, Joe Abercrombie, another fantasy author, is very good at this. Um, I'm reading uh, his, what's it called, the First Law trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, and in his books, he's actually got one of the characters who's a torturer. And he actually, at one point, it begins to make you feel sorry for him. <laughs> and for an author to be able to do that is quite an achievement indeed. <laughs> yeah, I found that with Breaking Bad. So all of a sudden you kind of, oh. you, yeah, all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, Walter. Oh. And then you go, hang on. <laughs> you find yourself going, but he's just murdered a whole bunch of people and I'm feeling sorry for the guy. What's wrong with me? So that's really, yeah. and I, I think that's a really, really talented author who can make you kind of like, wow what as humans where can we go emotionally and what can the possibility that we could all be anything from a homeless person to a murderer and everything mm -hmm. else in between we all have those capabilities and those possibilities it just depends on the circumstances we're in our brain chemistry and everything else so it's a uh, yeah it's i think you're doing a great job so, but speaking of those great jobs and um, how are you going to balance life as a political activist for the Green Party and also mm -hmm. um, with being an author? Because they're both quite con time consuming jobs. Yeah, yeah. If I get elected, <laughs> I guess I'm going to spend less time physically writing. There's just uh, no two ways about it because it's a you know, very responsible job and I'd want to throw myself fully into it. Um it's funny you use that word activist and I was thinking about it today and I thought, you know, if you become a, a counsellor, um, you're active. Is it quite the same as being an activist? There are people who I know in the Green Party who are activists. There's a 
a very brave lady I know. Um, she was made the local news because she was um, part of the Extinction Rebellion thing. Is that Helen? And on her, sorry, is that Helen? Um, that's not Helen Davison, though. It's a, it's a, she won't mind me saying, actually, because she was in the news. It's a, it's a lady called Fiona Pryor, um, and she was in the evening news and standard last week. And on her own, she sat in the middle of this Carlisle street with this placard protesting. Uh, and she lasted about 10 minutes before the police came along yeah. and sort of took her away. And she had to put up with all sorts of abuse and people taking over the placard and throwing it away. Oh. And she had to go to court and defend herself. Um, but the judge found her not guilty. Brilliant. Um, and that to me is kind of true activism. That's the problem brilliant. is, if I did that sort of thing, it might actually disqualify me from running as a councillor. Mm. Um, I know some people have managed to mix the two things. Uh, famously, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he was an MP for Islington, but he got arrested for protesting uh, during the 80s. Uh, I guess once you got the job, you can then go along and, you know, to hell with it all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned this on, on a previous podcast, but... Um... I played a gig a couple of weeks ago at the Wigan Diggers Festival and I warmed oh, yes. Jeremy Corbyn's toilet seat. <laughs> <laughs> it was I'm really sure odd. That very but much. <laughs> I didn't do it on purpose. It wasn't like, Jeremy, Jeremy's coming. It was just, it was just like, uh, I did the gig and I was I was on the train. I was, I was about to get the train home and I was like, oh, I need the loo. Came at the loo and there's Jeremy Corbyn standing in front of me. I was like, oh, thanks for everything you tried to do. <laughs> yeah. Give it 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Give it. You could have done worse. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> I, uh, I digress. Um, so were you encouraged growing up to be like creative or did you rebel against what your parents said, get a proper job and all the rest of it? Or, or were they uh, encouraging you saying you can do whatever you want to do? They were very easy about what they wanted me to do. Um, but, um, when I was young, I mean, the first thing I wanted to be was a, an RAF pilot. Then, unfortunately, at the age of 16, I was shown to be colorblind. So um, I couldn't do that because I'd be... Um, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't go into the RAF because I'm a pacifist now, you see. Yeah. So uh, it would have caused all sorts of conflicts. You After just wanted that, to fly was, like a dragon. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, then I wanted to be um, a, a presenter for a, a naturalist program because I was really into David Attenborough. Slam. Um, and that's what sort of uh, really got me into studying zoology and the natural world and ecology, which is why I'm into the Green Party as well. Um, so that's what I wanted to be next. Um, but then after university, um, I could have gone into research and it was all just very clicky and I just didn't take to it. And so I sort of almost just fell into teaching um, and did that for 30 years. And it wasn't until towards the end of teaching that I really sort of revived the whole uh, well, initially music, but then but then writing. So as a youngster, it wasn't that my parents said, you know, you, you shouldn't write. It's just that it didn't really occur to me. Um, but school did have one brilliant influence. He was uh, my English teacher. He was called uh, John Rimmer. And um, he, he was just amazing. His lessons, he just didn't stick to the syllabus hardly at all. In fact, it got to the sort of second half of the last year when we were supposed to study for these times. Oh, I suppose we better do some of this stuff. But the rest of the time, he was just reading us stories by John Wyndham, Ray Bradbury. And, you know, you could bring Shakespeare to life. You know, this dull, what would have been to me at the time, very dull, dry stuff. He was just able to bring life so that you wanted to read it. And he sort of encouraged writing poetry, writing short stories. And he would sort of read them out in front of the class and do it in a very sort of sensitive way. He'd read the ones that were a bit naff 
and then the ones that weren't quite so naff, but you, all, you treated them all with you know, really well done, encouraging. These days, I think schools do it better, at least at primary school level, before they bring along the national curriculum in a big way and sort of knock it out of them with grammar. But, you know, my daughter used to have people come to the school when she was at the school at Lanacost and they do whole day workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the potential to um, bring that out of kids these days that perhaps wasn't there in my day to the same extent. Um, so um, it was never put to me that you can't become a musician or you can't become an author or whatever. Uh, it's just that I think more society and expectations of schools drove you down a particular road. Um, looking back now, I wish I'd just tried to be a writer a lot earlier. I think I would have been a lot happier. Yeah. Oh, so you find you so you find happiness through your writing. That's 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 ex- extremely mm. good. Yeah, certainly. Um, well. I say, say happiness, contentment. Yeah. I, I have this belief that it's impossible to be totally happy all the time. I think it would actually drive your brain mad. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but content is good. I think <laughs> a few years ago, it. when I was working as a bookseller, I um, I met one person who I thought she came across as extremely happy, and mm-hmm. I was like, that can't that can't be good for you. She, but she came up when you just she just seemed always constantly happy. Turns out, a few years later. She wasn't happy at all. It was all fake. <laughs> so, yeah. But she was, we was all unfortunate. Masked, we? <laughs> it absolutely, we all do. And, um, and so I've just, because I remember kind of going, just because I was having such a bad day uh, when I was at work a long time. And she got this job that I really wanted when I was, because it was temporary contracts and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I was just like, well, I hope you're happy. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, which is i feel i really regret that now but anyway so it's uh yeah i, ho- I really do hope she's happy now so yeah. anyway enough of that uh where can people find out more about you and your work and, and what you're doing so what's your website okay. and all that sort of stuff yeah well my website's called tomghadams.com so uh if you say go it, there say it slower so we know okay. <laughs> tomghadams.com dot com uh, i had to put gh in because there's actually quite a few authors called tom adams so i put in my two middle initials um so uh yeah tom adams.com so there's um you can find out about books there you the thing that will confront you is uh, a picture of a guy screaming and my book my caphoria and, and you can download that for free um it's been if I can use the word success, <laughs> I mean, it's not a bestseller, but it's probably the most successful book that I've uh, written. It's got the most reviews anyway, positive reviews, and you can actually have it for free. Mm. So you just click on the link and you sign up to the newsletter and you get a you get another novel. You get The Psychonaut, of which your artwork featured hey. in that, Stu, if you remember. I do remember, um, I do. And um, you get that free as well. And you get a collection of short stories free. And after that, you have to buy them. Yeah. So, uh, but success yeah. is an interesting concept in itself. I mean, we judge ourselves on other people's financial success and, and mm. the, so many signifiers that we see around us in the world. But actually, I think personally, success is something that you need to be able to look back on yourself and about where you're from and not com- not comparing yourself to others. It's just about what yeah. is what makes you feel content and what have you managed to re- reach that point in your life and it sounds to me that you've reached a massive amount of contentment through through your creativity so in my eyes you're a huge success that's the most important thing yeah well uh, thanks for saying that um i've always you know the question that's often asked to me and, and to writers you know you say you're a writer and i've seemed to have got over that now i don't 
I don't say, oh, I'm a writer, sort of under my breath sort of thing. Um, and then they usually say, oh, well, I've heard of you. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Have you written any bestsellers yet? And people never ask a plumber, are you a best-selling plumber? <laughs> Have I heard of your work? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, for me, um, the fact that I am writing is the end. It's not the means to the end. I've already reached there, so I'm happy. Um, what I do like to think is that I can have a readership. I think it was Ursula Le Guin once said that you don't really have, you haven't fully expressed yourself in your art, whatever it is, unless you've made a connection with maybe it could be just one other person, but there's something in that sort of transferal that sort of, if you like, validates the art. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you make money or not, but if you've got that connection with what you're trying to produce it for, um, then that to me is the success, like you say. So I'm not too worried about making money. Yeah. Um, it's nice if one book finances the next one, so I don't go broke. But uh, even then, I think most of my books have run at losses. Uh, I, I'll still keep writing them, yeah. and I'll be content to do that. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, if we judged art on capital gain, then McDonald's would be the best artist of all time because they make loads <laughs> of money. And we know that's yes. not a truth. So no. I think you're... I really you're, admire those golden arches. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, so thank you so much for the most successful author that I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> like saying, oh, I, this might be, you might want to edit this out if it's politically incorrect, but that's like saying I'm the tallest dwarf in Cumbria. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tallest small person in Cumbria. Yes, that's right. <laughs> edit that out if you need to. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. And, and um, for the people at home who can't see this, Tom's going through an important decision making tomorrow, and I think he should keep it. I'm, I'm, I might even start a poll on this podcast. He might be losing the beard, but from where I'm sitting, it looks epic. <laughs> right. Well, I might just keep it a bit longer <laughs> on the strength of what you just said. Wonderful. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, Stu. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure for me as well. So hopefully when I'm back north, I'll see you again. Yes. Take care, my friend. Namaste. Okay, then you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.